to uh, I need to preach from my phone. I printed the thing off and just left it sitting on the printer. <laughs> so I just got I hate doing that, but uh, bear with me. All right, we're in First uh, and Second Thessalonians today, uh, but I want to start in Acts 17. So go ahead and turn there. So we made the decision to go through these letters canonically, which means going through them in the order in which they appear in the New Testament. Um, the other way you could go through them is chronologically, and, uh, or group them together by, by theme or, or whatever. But if you went through them chronologically, you would go through uh, Philippians and Thessalonians probably around the same time, or if you were grouping them together, uh, because they overlap a lot. Uh, Philippi was the first place that Paul went to on his second missionary journey uh, after he received the call to Macedonia. And uh, from Philippi, he went on to Thessalonica. And in both of those books, the the book to the Philippians mentions the trip to Thessalonica, and the book to um, the Thessalonians mentions uh, how they were treated in Philippi. So they they coincide uh, a lot. But here we are, so we'll have to kind of go back to this, uh, this portion of Scripture again. Uh, but in Acts 17, I'll just read the, uh, the account of Paul and Silas in Thessalonica. Now, when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous, and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason. This was their host, Paul's host, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also, and Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. And the people in the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things, and when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now they go on to Berea. They go to the synagogue there. Uh, a few of them believe. Uh, it says the Jews in, in Berea were a little more noble than those in Thessalonica because they actually said, well, let's go back to the word and see if what you're saying is true. Um, so if you ever hear someone tell you, you know, you Be a good Berean. It means you're going back to the word and really examining what's being said. Uh, Anyway, the Jews from Thessalonica learned that the word of God was proclaimed by Paul at Berea also, and they came there too, (laughs) agitating and stirring up the crowds. Then the brothers immediately sent Paul off on his way to the sea, but Silas and Timothy remained there. And Paul ends up in Athens. Uh, Timothy ends up going back to Thessalonica. 
And it's from Athens, likely, or maybe a little bit later, that um, Paul writes the letter to the Thessalonians. Okay, so here's the situation. They have, uh, they're journeying through Macedonia. Thessalonica, like Philippi, was a, um, a Roman colony, and it was a, it had sided when, when uh, Augustus was uh, doing his thing. It had sided with Augustus, and so it was sort of, uh, it enjoyed some privileges that other cities wouldn't have, like Philippi. Uh, so Philippi and Thessalonica were the same in that regard. Paul goes to Philippi. Um, he's thrown in jail there. He goes to Thessalonica. In the book of, to the Philippians, um, it mentions how the, uh, while they were in Thessalonica, the Philippians were ministering to their needs. Right? They were giving them aid and, and helping them. Um, but it's interesting to note that in, in the book to the Thessalonians, Paul makes it clear that while he was in Th- Thessalonica, he worked with his own hands to provide for himself. Okay, um, I'll, I'll get back to that uh, in a second. Um, so the situation is they go, they reason with the Jews. It says that they were there for three Sabbath days. That doesn't mean that that's how long they were in Thessalonica. That would have been three weeks. Um, the relationship seems to have developed over a longer period of time. What that means is they were in the synagogue for three weeks, um, and that was about all that, <laughs> that the synagogue could take. And for the rest of their time in Thessalonica, they were, they were ministering to, it says, a few of the Jews believed, and a lot of the Greeks. So the church there was primarily Greek, former pagans. And this is also mentioned in First Thessalonians, where he says, you all turned from pagans worshiping idols to serve the living God. Um, so it's not, as, uh, it's not as directed at former Jews as a lot of his other letters are. Okay? But they are run out by the Jews. And the Jews love to... Uh, this is, they do this all through the New Testament. They love to accuse the Christians of being unpatriotic to get the worldly system of, of justice involved. Right, so just like at Philippi where they say, hey, they're teaching something against Rome. Here in Thessalonica it says, hey, they're proclaiming another king. The Jews go to the authorities and say, they're proclaiming another king, Jesus. The Thessalonians want to maintain their status as pro-Rome. And so at that point, they have to get involved. All right, then they are driven out hastily. So they, they had spent some time in Thessalonica, in the synagogue, but also just training the new believers there, establishing the church there, but it got cut short because of this persecution. Okay? And, and it's, it's in this spirit that Paul is writing these letters to the Thessalonians. He was there, something good had gotten started, but it wasn't quite finished. Paul really wanted to get back, but he wasn't sure uh, if the situation would allow that. And that's why he's writing this letter. He's very anxious for the Thessalonians. He's not sure if the work there went on. While he's waiting in Athens, he sends Timothy to figure out how they are. Timothy comes back, brings a fairly good report. But he also, uh, so he thanks God, and this is how the first, uh, the first letter is structured. For the first three chapters, he's thanking God for what went on and reminding them of what he had delivered to them. 
In the second half, he is supplying what is lacking in their faith. What he hoped to go forward in, he had a deep knowledge of who they were, where they needed to go in the, in the, in the kingdom. And he is supplying that in chapters 4 and 5 of 1 Thessalonians. So, uh, this letter is, is very much a, uh, right in the middle of the action. Okay? It's, it doesn't read like a, uh, like a Romans, which seems pretty premeditated. There's a, there's a lot of action going on in the midst of this. Paul's on the move. He's been driven out. And there's an incomplete work. And he really wants to make sure that the kingdom gets established in this church at Thessalonica. Um, so that's the situation surrounding the letter. Um, it is structured... Let me pull up this. Second Thessalonians is written not too long after that. Uh, probably after uh, he had received back another report in response to his first letter. And he's correcting some some further issues there. So let me walk through just kind of an outline of, of both letters. 1 Thessalonians chapters 1 through 3, Paul's relationship with the Thessalonians and reminders of his teaching. Uh, chapters 4 and 5, supplying what is lacking in their faith. And this comes from, from uh, 1 Thessalonians 3.10 where he says, We pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. We've we we got to go back there. We, our, we weren't done. We were not done. The work was not done in Thessalonica. Second uh, Thessalonians is pretty easy. There's just three issues that he needs to address. So he just dives right in to the issues. Okay? Uh, it's a much more to-the-point letter. Uh, first issue would be correcting uh, some understandings about the coming judgment of God uh, the return of Christ. Actually, it, I mean, God's justice, God's judgment in the, of these people who are persecuting them. So he talks about the persecution. Second chapter talks about um, some mis- misperceptions that they had about the, the, the return of Christ. And then the third chapter gives an extended admonition to these people who were idle uh, among them. And he, he, he mentions them briefly in the first book, but apparently he, he deserves a longer treatment in the second letter. All right, so let's, uh, let's just walk through a little bit more in depth. And uh, I want to pull out three primary themes, um, and, and they're these. I'll just give them to you right off. Uh, if you go to 1 Thessalonians 1, 2... We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your, one, work of faith, two, labor of love, and three, steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. And the things that he has to say to the Thessalonians revolve around those three uh, big words. So I want to talk about those words some and show you how they apply to the Thessalonians. And my challenge for us is um, how do those words apply? What's the state of those words in our, in our lives? Okay. So I want to describe 
little more fully what faith is as Paul understands it, what love is as Paul understands it, what hope is, and then see if we can't apply that to our own life. Uh, Our situation is very different than that of the Thessalonians. Faith, hope, and love are equally important to us as, as they were to them. Okay, so... The first thing, so let's talk about faith, okay? And faith in Scripture is tricky in, in Greek because uh, it's the same word, faith and faithfulness. So that can, that can be difficult to understand, okay? It's difficult to, to figure out what's, what Paul's actually saying. Um, a lot of times the New Testament translates the phrase faith in Christ, or it's the faith of Christ, That can mean faith in Christ or the faithfulness of Christ. And you have to use context. Like, it's not clear. You can't just know the Greek a little better. You have to use the context to figure out what Paul is actually talking about. But the point is this. Faith in Scripture is not primarily a mental activity. It's not... Faith is not like your religious affiliation. Okay, faith is an active, I mean, it, it, it is the, your direction in life. It is something that, that determines the way that you live your life in all areas. Faith works, okay? And so that's not that it, it, it works, like it, it's successful. Faith works, it, it's active, okay? There's an aspect of trust in faith. When you bring in the concept of trust to faith, it's, it's different. It takes on a different meaning. Because trust is a relational thing. The more I know you, the more I can put weight on who you are. So there's that aspect of faith. There's also, there's also an aspect of obedience in faith. Hearing and doing. Okay? And so this this, this is rounding out for us what faith really means. It means believing something, knowing something to be true, really believing it, yes, mentally, but then living in accordance with that truth. Having been convinced of it in a deep way. So it's trust, believing, knowing, and acting. And so that's why faith and faithfulness come from the same word. Usually when we say man of faith, what does that mean? He's a man of faith. It means that he has religious beliefs, right? He's a man of faith. What if we said he's a faithful man? There's no difference in Greek, but that's very different in English. He's a faithful man. That has to do with his character, what he does with his life, how he treats others. Faithful man. There's no difference in Scripture. A man of faith is a faithful man. Does that make sense? It's, it's, hard to, it's hard to keep that straight, though. So he says, your work of faith. What he's saying is, you've, you've stayed faithful. I heard that you guys have had remained faithful to what I delivered you. Your work of faith. So, faithfulness. It's, so there's also an aspect of loyalty and devotion. So we've got trust obedience, action, 
belief, devotion, and loyalty. All of these are bound up in that word faith. <laughs> Which is why it's used so much in Scripture, right? It really encompasses the, all aspects of our life with God. So, what was, what was the mark of the Thessalonians' faith? It was that in the face of persecution and suffering and affliction, they were holding true to what Paul had delivered to them. They were still proclaiming Jesus Christ as the Lord. They, had, they were not bowing to idols. They were serving the living God. So in their context, it meant loyalty to Jesus. Over and above loyalty to the world system, the idols in their day. So it didn't just mean believing in the doctrines that Paul had. It meant, in a very real way, separating themselves and, and, and obeying and, and being loyal to Jesus rather than the idols. Okay? What Paul wants to supply, what's lacking in their faith, he gets to in uh, chapter 4. He says, We ask and urge that you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you were doing, that you do so more and more. Uh, For this is the will of God, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality. Each of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter. God has not called us for impurity but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this disregards not man but God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And there's a lot in there. That's a great passage of Scripture. But what I want to point out is that that was faith. It takes faith to live a holy life. Not because you have to believe really hard, but because when it comes to the point where your passions say one thing, and society says one thing, and all the world is going in this direction, you say, I know that that's not the will of God, and I'm going to act in accordance with that, and remain loyal to that, and obey that, and have faith in my knowledge, but also be faithful in my actions. All right, so faith leads to holy living. And so he's saying, just as you've laid down those idols, and just as you've separated yourself from what, the, what your city goes after, you also need to do this. You need to live holy lives. You need to separate yourselves from the world around you. And that requires faith. Because it's not going to seem like the best thing to do. And it's not going to jive with the way, we've been, the way they've been groomed to operate. Everybody else around them viewed sex in a certain way. It was very promiscuous according to um, biblical standards. But it's just the way it went. Paul was saying, no, no, no. Our lusts do not drive us. We control our lusts if we belong to Jesus. So, faith, faithfulness, loyalty, devotion, obedience, action, holiness. That's what faith is for Paul. Okay? 
Now, love. Love is like the hardest word to ever get straight on what you're actually talking about with people. You talk about love and everyone hears something different. Uh, It is absolutely laden with cultural overtones. Uh, But he says that when he thinks of the Thessalonians, that he thinks of their labor of love. Okay, so faith works and love labors. Love labors. So he says, you have this going for you. In uh, chapter 4, verse 9. Concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. You guys get this love thing. You understand that you are giving yourselves to a community. And that involves commitment. That involves faithfulness to each other. That involves sticking with each other, forgiving each other. You are committed to unity and love. But here's what's lacking. We urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. You get love. You're on the right track. Now, use your hands to love. Work. You can love all you want in word, but until it results, until it comes out in your labor for another person, it's not quite the love of God. It's not quite what we're going for. The love of the world seeks what pleases it and attaches itself to that. The love of God looks around and sees who needs to be loved and commits to love that person in a way that causes that person to flourish regardless of the cost to you. Love love doesn't bend when, and Paul spells this out in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, it's kind, all these things. It doesn't, it's not easily offended. It doesn't insist on its own way. It's not conditional on reciprocity, what I get out of you. It's all directed at my actions, my work, my labor, whatever it takes for your flourishing, for your life. And so he says, you know how to love, now do it with your hands. That's what he says. And then he warns people at the, end of the, at the end of the book, he warns the idol. Now there's a lot of people, um, a lot of people have different ideas about what, what these idol really were. Uh, some people say that people were just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. And that's why Paul has to kind of correct their misperceptions about Jesus coming back and also tell them to get to work. So they connect those two things. Um, some people think that it had to do with... Uh, the society there, there was, um, there was something called patronage. And uh, if you watch the Bible Project videos, they mention this too. But patronage would just be like there's a wealthy person who uh, you can kind of 
be employed by them and do little tasks for them and you get money. But the only problem is sometimes they'd ask you to do something that wasn't godly, but you were kind of in a bind because you needed money, so you kind of had to sell yourself out morally in order to get some money from these people. And so he's saying, don't be dependent on anyone. So what he's getting at is, don't, you know, don't, do un- <laughs> don't do immoral favors for people just to, to get a kickback. But work with your own hands. Make something. Produce something so you can have something to give to other people. Uh, but idle doesn't mean like sit around and twiddle your thumbs. It means un- unruly. It means in, 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 unordered life. Um, it says that these people are busy. They busy themselves. They're not busy at work. They're busy bodies, is how the ESV says it. And so he says, you need to learn how to love. You need to learn how to revolve your life around someone else. And if you really do love someone, then show it with your hands. Do the work. Figure out what needs to be done. Increase your own wealth so that you can be a resource to others. So that you can back up your love with actual physical manifestations of that. Okay? Get back to my notes here. So, faithfulness in the midst of persecution. Love as a way out of idleness. Real love. Laboring. If you don't work, you shouldn't eat. Produce enough for yourself, but not just enough for yourself. More than enough. Aim at at expanding your base of resource so that you can bless others. And then hope. Uh, He says they have a measure of hope, but they're a little bit fuzzy. Uh, maybe they're losing heart because of they're being persecuted and they're not quite sure. They're believing this lie, as it says in 2 Thessalonians, they're believing this lie that some people are propagating that the day of the Lord, it already, the ship has sailed. Right? It's already come. And he's saying, no, no, no don't, don't let anyone tell you that. All of this stuff has to happen. This is how it's going to go in the world. Even, yes, Jesus has come. Yes, we have hope. Yes, he's coming back to set everything right. So don't, don't doubt any of that. But it's going to look a little strange until that day. Okay, and this is, prophet, this is what Jesus prophesied in the Gospels. There's going to be wars and rumors of wars. The important thing is that you don't lose hope. That you don't become shaken. That you don't look around you and say, uh, It's been a while. I don't think he's coming back. Or maybe he came back and we missed it. Paul says... Settle down. Hunker down. He's going to deal with all the causes of trouble in your life. So trust that and hope in what's to come, despite what you see. In Hebrews it says, faith is the assurance of things hoped for. And he says, who hopes for what he sees? If you hope for what you see, you don't have any hope. If you base your hope on your current evaluation of the situation... That's not hope at all. If your hope is dependent on that. But if you know for sure what's coming, and you know who you believe, and what he's capable of, that's real hope. Now, you don't see it now. And so, what he says is that, I rejoice 
in your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. So hope is not a movement where you become excited. Hope is something that knows for a fact what the end game is and remains steadfast come what may. Okay? Now, I encourage you to go back, um, and maybe in the first couple days this week, read back through these letters and look for faith, hope, and love. Both him commending them for how they, how they display faith, hope, and love, and also exhorting them and even warning them about hindrances that they are facing to faith, hope, and love. Okay? And you'll see, it, it's, it's, so, it's such a great... You know, I don't know if Paul, like, really, if these words are, like, just really important to him, and they just get into everything else that he writes, or if he, like, really planned these letters to revolve around these three words. I don't know. It could just be that because they're so essential, everything revolves around them, right? But go and read the letters, and and, and read back through, and look for faith, hope, and love. And it's not the only letter that he he mentioned those. He mentioned those three in, in unison. All right. So, faithfulness, love, faith that works, love that labors, and hope that is steadfast. And you need hope that is steadfast if it's real hope. Because it's not hope if it's just dependent on what you can see. And what's feasible in your own mind. Right? So that's why we say our hope is not in a political system. Because we will never have steadfast hope <laughs> if it's in a political system. Our hope is not in a, uh, a worldly organization of Christian people. Right? Our hope is in the power of the resurrection. In the glory of God and the wisdom of God, and the sovereignty of God. Our hope is not in this world somewhere. It is with Christ in the heavenly realms. So let me just read a few things. Um, And this is in his opening Thanksgiving. He says, "I, I thank God because you... You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Um, Verse 9. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You turn from idols, praise the Lord, and now you are waiting for Jesus to come from heaven. You're waiting for him to come and put all things right. Um, The other thing to look for is Paul's own love for the Thessalonians that he hints at. He says, we were like a father, we were like a mother. We worked with our own hands so that we could share with you. 
he's, he's exemplifying for them this love. All right. Uh, in Second Thessalonians, I want to read this. Uh, let's see. I've totally lost my place. Oh, yeah. Okay, so in 1 Thessalonians, he says, you've turned from idols, and now you're waiting for uh, the Son of God from heaven to come. And here he fills out that idea of what we're doing in the meantime. He says uh, in verse 5, the 2 Thessalonians 1, This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Since indeed God considers it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to grant relief to you who are afflicted, as well as to us, when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels, in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not know God and on those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus, they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. Uh, What I want to say there is that there's a lot of, uh, you know, people go into, they dive into Thessalonians and they go straight for the um, kind of hard to interpret end time stuff. To the neglect of, like, I think, what is the real heart of behind the books? Uh, but even that end time stuff, they go for the most ambiguous parts and they become fixated on, you know, who is the man of lawlessness? What is the Antichrist? What is this thing that's being restrained for the current time? And the truth is, we can't know for sure. What we can know for sure is what Paul was encouraging them to do. And the overall truth of what he's proclaiming, which is, Christ has come. Jesus is the Messiah. That's what he was preaching. All the promises of God have been fulfilled. And now he has ascended and he's coming back. But in the meantime, you need to stay faithful to him. You need to love each other. You need to have hope in what's coming, because here's what's coming. God is, Jesus is coming down, he's going to return, and he is going to, every, every one of these agents of destruction in your life, of affliction in your life, he is going to banish them out. He, he's coming back, and they will be cast out. And so none of that is up to you. None of that vengeance is up to you. You don't have to worry about... Justice. Is there going to be justice? Yes, there is. Be faithful in the midst of all of that. Because he is coming back. And uh, the, the other verse in here that confuses a lot of people is, this is where people get the rapture in First uh, Thessalonians. It says we're going to be caught up together in the air. The whole scene is him. Here, let's go to that. First Thessalonians. Where is that? Chapter 5, yeah. Yeah, now concerning the times and seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you. For you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. When people are saying there is peace and security. Uh, 
Oh, no, end of chapter 4. Sorry, we don't want you to be uninformed uh, about those who have fallen asleep. Um, Verse 16, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, and then we who are alive were left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air as he's descending to earth, to then cast out of the earth the destroyers of the earth. Right? So it's not like this moment that we're waiting for and just going to lightning ourselves to heaven. Christ is going to come back and he says, don't worry about it. You'll know when it happens. You're not going to miss it. It's going to be obvious to everyone. He's coming back. We're going to meet him in the air as he's coming back. But it's like this, this image of like a, a general returning from war. And he's returning back to his home city. And everyone goes out to join him in the parade as he comes back to the city. Okay, It's a little more, uh, I think, reasonable uh, interpretation of that. But the point is um, not that we have all the end time stuff figured out. The point is, what is our hope? Our hope is is that God's going to come down, just like he did in Eden, and he had to banish Adam and Eve out of Eden and put an arch, arch angle, arch, arch. <laughs> a flaming angel, <laughs> arch angel, he put an archangel at the gate of Eden and then cast out those who were destroying the place. That's, he's going to do the same thing. He's coming down, and those who do not want him to rule and reign over them, he is going to, he's coming down with an archangel, with flaming swords, and he's going to cast them out. That's what the final judgment is. And everyone who has been faithful on earth, who has fallen asleep, they're going to rise. And, and together we are going to be in the new heavens and new earth together, and they're going to be joined together as one. Okay, it's not, every, we're not all going to be whisked off to heaven, and then the earth is just going to be here um, figuring out what to do, scratching their heads, you know, what do we do now, um, kind of thing. It's, it's, you will know. There's going to come a time. He's going to come, and then everyone at that point who has not wanted the rule of Christ in their lives will be gathered up and, and, and as it says in the Gospels, cast into outer darkness. They're going to be removed. We are not going to be removed. This is where, this is, this is our place. And heaven... Our citizenship is in heaven. Heaven is coming here. And, and the destroyers of the earth are going to be cast out and removed. But that's our hope. okay? And that should cause us um, not to become you know, puffed up about end times stuff. But that should cause us to examine our lives and say, do we live like one day our neighbor, if he does not want the rule of Christ in his life, He's going to become, and God is going to cast him out. We won't see him again. You know, the people that we live with. So this should, this should shape the way that we think now, not just the way that we speculate about end times events. And that is why Paul is reminding them. He says, therefore, encourage one another. And he also says, I told you a lot of stuff. Remember all that stuff? All right, good. And we don't know that stuff. <laughs> And we can only speculate. Okay. So here's, here's what I want to ask us this morning. The, the first and most important thing. This thing is driving me nuts. 
the first and most important question, okay, this comes before all the other questions, is has the gospel, as it says in 1 Thessalonians 1, has the gospel come to us, not in word only, but in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction? Can you say, can someone look at your life and say, I thank God because obviously the gospel has come to your life. Not just in word, but in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. That's from 1 Thessalonians 1, 4, and 5. We know, brothers, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. It's a good way, it's a good Pauline way of asking, are you saved? Are you really saved? And have we truly turned away from idols to serve the living and true God? Is that what we really believe that we, we do when we worship God together? That we have turned from the things that we worshiped with our desires things in the world that held us in bondage, our own sins, our own passions, have we turned from that stuff? And do we really worship the living and true God? And are we waiting and anticipating His Son from heaven? Do we have that sense of urgency? Because what He wants to say about the coming of the Lord is not Hey, here's some inside knowledge that you can really use to say some cool things. He says this, So, let us not sleep, but keep awake and be sober. Let's live like he's coming back. So, that's the first question. Are you really saved? Has the gospel really turned your world upside down? Full conviction, Holy Spirit and power. And if you turn from idols to serve the living God, and are you waiting for his son from heaven? That's what it means to be a Christian. Okay, so, but I'm assuming that, you know, I think everyone in this room can say yay and amen to that. So then the other three questions are, what is it that for us challenges our faithfulness, our faith? Thessalonians had their challenges. And Paul addresses those. What is it in your life that challenges your faith? Faithfulness. In, in the way that he's talking about. Not like what ideas maybe cause you to doubt who God is or his existence. But what is it that really hinders you from being this faithful, loyal, devoted son of God? Daughter of God? And I would point to two things that, that, that we could probably point at. And, and one is hindrances to our devotional life. Very simply. Things that get in the way of you in praying. Things that get in the way of you and reading the Bible. You're not afflicted. You're not persecuted. You live in a wealthy country. You have full freedom of religion, protected by your country's constitution. So that's not, a, that's not a challenge to your faith. 
It's your freedom and liberty that's the challenge to your faith. It's the myth of discretionary time that is a challenge to your faith. Faithfulness, loyalty, devotion, sold-outness. And so very simply, the things that you choose to do with your time that don't have to do with seeking first the kingdom of God are an enemy to you, are an enemy to God. Just like those enemies that are persecuting and afflicting the Thessalonians. We are persecuted and afflicted by our freedom and by our wealth. And so we need to treat it like that. And become God's faithful people. What is it that challenges our love? We know who we are. We're wealthy Americans. What is it that challenges our love? Sentimentality. An overemphasis of the emotions. Disney, whatever you want, whatever you want to say. Disney princess mentality. This casual, casual romance hookup mentality. That is a, an absolute hindrance to our love. The other thing is, you know, idleness. I think that we would suffer from the same things for different reasons. But idleness, the ability to coast, the ability to not squeeze everything, every opportunity for uh, wealth acquisition and, and hard work and production, productivity, to not squeeze all of that out of your life with a view toward expanding your ability to resource the kingdom. That's an enemy. That's something that hinders our understanding of love. We want to sit around and wait to feel loved. And as soon as we feel loved, we will show some, show some love in return. What God is looking for is people who know who they're supposed to love, and who revolve, who, who give all of their energy, time, effort. I mean, how does God say, command us in the Old Testament to love Him? With all of your heart, soul, mind, strength. Well, that's how we're supposed to love each other. And that's a way of showing how much we do love God. And so, do we understand that love is a heart, soul, mind, and strength activity? And not a sentiment. And not an emotion. Because our narrow, pinched, subjective, worldly concept of love is, keeping, is, is hindering the kingdom of God from coming forth from our lives. So what is it that, that, that challenges my faithfulness? What is it that challenges my love? both in my understanding of love, but also in my living out, the, the laboring out of love. And what is it that challenges my hope? And it's the, it's the worldly perspective. It's the quick fix mentality. 
It's we can, we can identify a problem and we can bring a solution if we just work hard enough and put our minds together. We can apply a principle to this situation to achieve a desired end. That's not what our hope is in. That will rob you of hope. That will, that, that will cause you to despair. Right? The height of human ingenuity and reason, the period of the Enlightenment, where did that get us? It brought us to the 20th century, which has been the bloodiest century in all of human history. Hope in human ability, hope in anything other than the Creator Himself, hope in anything that's been created, <laughs> anything that, that, that comes from within the created order, hope in anything there is going to lead to despair and is not going to bring about the kingdom of God. We have lots of hindrances to hope, real hope. And they mostly look like hope. They masquerade as hope. They're TED Talks. Right? You will despair if you live your life according to TED Talks and the next Apple device and the technological salvation of the world you will end up despairing same goes for anything political or anything religious those are enemies of hope and we need to see them for what they are um, so yeah that's that's the challenge I mean, that's how these books challenge me Paul is driving Four, faith, hope, and love. He's thanking God for, for the, the seeds of that, and he's saying, just like you've received, do it more and more. And so that's the challenge for us. God has saved us. Uh, he's shown us what faith, hope, and love are. We know it, but we need to, he says, just like you've been taught, do it more and more. So that's the challenge today. Do it more and more. Identify those things where... Uh, your faithfulness and love and hope are being tested. And, uh, and let God turn those upside down about the truth of who his son is.